This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. Someone once described the movies as the greatest time machine ever built. They're certainly the most vivid way we can travel into the past, even if the pictures we receive are sometimes unreliable. But the question is, who's past? It could be an attempt to conjure up some significant historical event, maybe offering some insight many years later. Or it could simply be about reliving your own past, something you loved as a kid, say. Thanks for saving us. Stand back! You're a prisoner. Prisoners? Silence! You ought to be taken to Ming! Emperor of the universe. No, no, Sash, no. We must be taken to the Emperor. One famous example of personal time travel was George Lucas's wildly expanded cover version of the clunky old movie serials he used to go to as a kid. He could have featured Flash Gordon and Ming the Merciless. Instead, smartly, he made up characters called Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, and the rest, as they say, was Star Wars. I won't fail you. I'm not afraid. If you only knew the power of the dark side. That was the secret, making it all up. Fifty years later, Star Wars is a bit of a joyless factory, churning out movies and TV series based on the same existing material and light years away from Lucas's first fine careless rapture, which is why they're rather less fun now. The Jedi Code is like an itch. He cannot help it. Where is he? Well, this year saw two contrasting examples of nostalgia at work. Greta Gerwig's Barbie blended her childhood love of dolls with her adult worldview, while Seth Rogen has revived his own childhood obsession, the TV series Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But Rogan has no interest in changing anything with his version. He just wants it bigger. Can I kick it? We take out super far, and then everyone will think we're cool. They'll accept us. Can I kick it? He's making a deal tonight under the Brooklyn Bridge. Can I kick, 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 I suppose you could say the same thing about Sir Kenneth Branagh's lumbering tributes to Agatha Christie's famous detective Hercule Poirot. In the last film, Death on the Nile, Branner added some unconvincing heroic backstory for Poirot. In the new one, A Haunting in Venice, he throws in some unconvincing spooks. There must be a rational answer for all of this. Just admit that you are up against something bigger than you. No! (laughs) 
Right now, what's filling the cinemas are, if not better, then certainly bigger versions of familiar fiction. But meanwhile, a smaller, more serious and, frankly, more important film has to make do streaming on Prime Video. It's called Till, the true story of a miscarriage of justice that ended up changing the United States for the better. You tell me, Mamie, how is risking your life going to help you? Those pictures of your son change people's lives. I can't look, baby. We have to. More on that in a minute, but first, the moustache is back. Hercule Poirot is going to a haunting in Venice. That woman called the spirits. And they answered. You saw what I saw. For once in your life, admit that you are up against something bigger than you. Now, the good news about a haunting in Venice is that director and star Kenneth Branagh has reduced Hercule Poirot's moustache considerably this time. It pretty much needed its own dressing room in Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile. The less good news for Agatha Christie fans is that the original book, Halloween Party, has been severely tweaked, and not just by resetting it in Venice. Hercule Poirot, I've found something. I've looked at it from every which way. I am the smartest person I ever met, and I can't figure it out, so I came to the second. You are up to something, my friend. A Haunting in Venice opens on Poirot retired among the canals, though he's constantly badgered by would-be clients with murders to solve. He refuses all requests until an old friend, the mystery writer Ariadne Oliver, makes him an offer she thinks he can't refuse. I've seen a million of these so-called psychics, each one a fake. I do not believe in psychics. Come with me to a seance. Spot the car and I can't. It's Tina Fey leading a typically international cast from the Irish stars of Branagh's Belfast, Jamie Dornan and young Jude Hill, to Camille Cotin, fondly remembered from the French TV series Call My Agent. Oh, and coffee ads with George Clooney. But I digress. Ariadne lures Poirot in to investigate an apparently fake psychic, cashing in on people's misery. Detective, you are here to discredit me. But I can talk to the dead. I'd give all I have to hear my daughter's voice. If someone wants to be heard, we are here. Into the psychic, Joyce Reynolds, played, for some reason, by Michelle Yeoh. Her seance takes place in the luxury home of opera singer Rowena Drake, who's desperately trying to make contact with her recently deceased daughter, Alicia. Everyone who ever lived here falls victim to some tragedy like her daughter a year ago. Among the guests are a shell-shocked doctor and his too-clever-by-half son, a chef, a couple of refugee siblings and a superstitious housekeeper. The usual Agatha Christie job lot. The seance takes place and then takes a turn for the bizarre. Listening... Rowena swears that the uncanny voice coming from the mouth of Mystic Michelle is in fact that of her daughter. Further gimmicks include a typewriter that operates with nobody touching it and a chandelier that suddenly crashes to the floor. 
But by now, all we're really interested in is who's the body. What is happening? The murder happens in a suitably dramatic fashion. All the lights go out. Poirot insists on the doors being locked and that nobody leave the room. And off we go. You can't trap us here. Somebody is dead. No one shall leave this place until I know who did it. But with Agatha Christie adaptations, you do have to stay on the Christie rails. Once you deviate, trying to make it more modern and relevant, for instance, you get into trouble. Branagh seems determined to change Poirot from the fussy, vain Belgian of the books to a serious, earnest chap with a heroic backstory, though goodness knows why. Don't look at me like I'm a suspect. We're old friends. Every murderer is somebody's old friend. It's certainly no improvement on the David Suchet Poirot in the classic TV series. And it's also a lot duller. It's as if he sucked all the personality out of Poirot in the first two movies and replaced it with an outsized moustache. And now he's cut back the moustache. Tonight, we are all afraid. We cannot hide from our ghosts. whether they are real or not. As for the ludicrous extra ghost story elements, well, frankly, they're as phony as Poirot's accent. The best thing about a haunting in Venice, once again, is the famously picturesque location. Venice will never let you down, unlike this movie. You have been hiding here all this time. Who are you talking to? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles got their start as a gonzo comic book series created by a couple of cartoonists barely out of their teens, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. They sold the idea to a cheapo animation company who made a TV series that conquered the world in the 1990s. That's what a ridiculously catchy theme song will do. Since then, there have been countless spin-off movies and subsequent TV series. But for people of a certain age, like writer-producers Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, the original was by far the best. And that's what they wanted to recreate in the animated feature Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. Boys, where have you been? We're just running errands. That's it? The film certainly looks like a comic book, all slapdash animation, heavy on murky shadows, spiky creatures and lots of green. The green is not only the turtles themselves, but the ooze that turned them into Teenage Mutant Ninja versions. <laughs> hey, guys, if we weren't monsters that were shunned by society and we could do what we wanted, what would you guys do? Go to high school? Maybe get a girlfriend? Can you imagine that? Not likely. <laughs> 
As anyone glued to a TV in the 90s can tell you, once the baby turtles grew up, they were named after Renaissance artists Leonardo, Donatello, Raphael and Michelangelo. OK, so which was which? Exactly, and that's pretty much the deal in this filmed version. Mutant Mayhem sticks close to the Ninja Turtle origin story, at the start at any rate. Their adopted father is a similarly mutated New York rat called Splinter. Though what a New York rat is doing with Jackie Chan voicing him? Well, as we say in New York, forget about it. You was covered in this ooze, someone dumb in the source. Whatever this ooze was, it transformed us. It was weird, but we became a family. And to complete the gang, we meet young, would-be journalist April O'Neil, who becomes their best friend. She's voiced by Ao Edebiri, fresh from the triumph that was the Bear TV series and the rather less triumphant theatre camp last week. This is insane. Turtles, mutant, karate teens. I want to know everything about you. Our dad is definitely not a giant rat. That makes me feel like he's a rat. April and the Turtles decide there's only one way to win over the turtle-phobic public. If they can apprehend a master criminal called Superfly, not only will the mutant ninjas finally become heroes in a half-shell, but April will gain mucho credibility at school as a genuine reporter. Police are baffled by the recent crime wave led by a Superfly. Nobody's ever seen his face. Why? Because he kills everyone who does. No, not cool. Eh, a bit cool. Can I In a series of leaps and bounds, they make contact with Superfly. Mind you, he's hard to miss. An actual huge mutant fly backed up by a crew of other mutants of all shapes and sizes. What the? Y'all some little tortoises, huh? I can't believe there are other mutants. You want to roll with us? Humans are never going to like us. In the TV series, budget restrictions limited rival mutants to, from memory, a warthog and rhino double act called Bebop and Rocksteady. But all these other dudes are new to me. Mutant lizards, frogs, spiders, and I don't know what else. Actually, it wasn't until the credits rolled that I realised quite how spendthrift this film had been with its voice talent. So we're going to let the mutants rule the earth. People's got to go. Okay, um, sort of a twist. Since all the bad guys mostly talk at once, you barely register any of them, least of all who's doing the voices. If you recognised Paul Rudd, Rose Byrne, comedian Hannibal Barres, Seth Rogen and Maya Rudolph, you've got better ears than mine. We can't stop him. We gotta try. Six in the morning, police at my door. Perhaps they'll get more use out of them in subsequent episodes. I mean, supervillain Shredder makes only the briefest appearance at the end, so I have to assume that sequels have been planned, though don't make them on my account. Did you get that, April? Did you film that? Sorry, am I supposed to film all the stuff you do? Because a lot of it's dumb. We We are
Good news for this film is that most Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies and TV series make money, even the terrible ones. Now, this one isn't terrible. It's just a bit redundant. It feels like television, and I have a bad feeling about any subsequent sequels. Turtle power? I doubt it. Emmett Till was one of the most significant figures in the American civil rights movement, though outside the United States his name may not be as well known as it should be. His story has been the subject of several documentaries, but as far as I know, Till is the first feature film dramatisation. It's currently streaming on Prime Video. I got a letter today from Auntie Lizzie. She said, Bo's been working the fields. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine. Oh, he just doesn't understand how different things are in Mississippi. Emmett Till was a 14-year-old kid in 1955. His family had moved out of rural Mississippi and settled in Chicago, where his mum, Mamie Till, found a good job and a nice house. One day, Emmett, nicknamed Bo by the family, is invited down south for a couple of weeks to meet his cousins. We have a really good life in Chicago, but they have a different set of rules down in Mississippi. You have to be extra careful. I know. Bo, be small. Like this? Mamie has severe doubts. Bo only knows life in the gregarious big city. He has no idea what life is like in hardcore racist Mississippi. She tries to tell him, but he's a kid. He doesn't listen. He's on holiday. He's just going to see his cousins. Not a bad thing for him to know where he come from. Even you left Mississippi, Mama. I don't want him seeing himself the way those people are seen down there. Emmett Till was a friendly, jokey kind of kid, so when he buys some candy at a shop, it never occurs to him not to joke with the hard-faced white woman behind the counter. But his cousins know. Get in the car, they scream. She's got a gun. Her name is Carolyn Bryant. You don't see what's been going on around here? They killing Negroes for doing way less than what you did in money. You ain't no white man, Bobo. You want to bust. Hey, leave him alone, Maurice. Mrs. Bryant must have kept it to herself. No one has to know. And that's one thing a movie can do, show you precisely how something like this can happen. There's a knock at the door that night, Bo is taken, and that's the last his family see him alive. But that's by no means the end of the story. There's a lot more to come. I want to talk to you about that boy. They've come for you. Till was directed by Nigerian-born Chinonye Chukwu and written by Emmett Till scholar Keith Beauchamp. What grabs you is how closely it seems to stick to the well-documented facts. This is a story that needs no dramatic help at all, and what happened next made history. The body of Emmett Lewis Till has been found dead. Can I at least just fix him up a bit? No. They have to see it for themselves. When Emmett Till's body was returned to his mother, it was almost unrecognisable. And out of her icy rage at what had happened to her son, Mamie Till made the decision that Emmett be shown in an open coffin, and she demanded that everyone look. 
That smell is my son's body, reeking of racial hatred. Now I want America to bear witness. Come with me, please. The whole world has to see what happened to my son. It was that and the famous photograph of the event that forced the lynching of Emmett Till off the typical southern crime pages of the country's newspapers and onto the front page. This was one of the first headline-grabbing moments of the late 50s that finally put civil rights on the political agenda a hundred years after the Civil War. You have the public's attention. We have an opportunity. I don't want my children to have to live in fear. We do the best we can. Danielle Deadweiler, who plays Mamie Till, is absolutely riveting. From hot passion to cold fury, she was nominated for a BAFTA, which you'd think alone would have earned Till a cinema release, but sadly, no. It's hard to describe what a mother knows. The first thing I noticed when I became a mother was that my hands were busy all the time. My hand knew him with my eyes closed. This is a story you may think you've heard before, particularly the courtroom scene when belatedly two of the people responsible were charged. But many of the stories you know, notably Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, were inspired by that of Emmett Till. Just like I know his laughter in a crowded room, it's the same thing when you know all of someone. This was my boy, Emmett Till. As I say, you need to see it to get some sense of the reality of life for the black citizens of 1955 Mississippi. And I want to give actress Haley Bennett a particular tip of the hat. The casually racist Carolyn Bryant is possibly the most poisonous character of the year. Today, it's a crime that almost beggars belief. And it's not even the worst thing about this story. Chicago. I had a son. When something happened to the Negroes in the South, I said, that's their business, not mine. Long after the crime and the appalling injustices that followed, things did start changing for the better. In 1957, the Civil Rights Act was passed, the beginning of a long, slow journey. And eventually, Emmett Till's name was attached to an anti-lynching act. Shockingly, it was finally signed in 2022. Now I know what happens to any of us anywhere in the world had better be the business of us all. As Mamie Tell said, it's the business of us all. This is an old story that deserved to be told, not because it's a familiar one with a familiar title, but because most of us didn't know it, or at least didn't know all of it. It's on Prime Video, and if you can see it, do see it. And on that uncompromising recommendation, it's time to go. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.